Welcome back to your safe space, the beauty in being real. So excited for today's episode as I did an interview with the amazing Alan. I met Alan during my time working at the Lighthouse as he was in the pantomime and I spoke to everyone in the pantomime on Instagram and I really, really loved Alan. His work was incredible and himself as a person is just incredible. So I asked him to come on the podcast and he so kindly agreed. We spoke for around an hour, so you guys get a cup of tea and sit down because you need to listen to this. It is so good. I'm so happy with it. And I'm really, really proud to share this with you guys. I'm so excited. In this episode, we talked about how actors can hold the themselves accountable for jobs if they don't think the job is right for them for example we spoke about if someone who is not deaf get offers get offered sorry a role playing a character that is deaf they should take accountability and turn it down because there's a deaf actor out there who could not only portray the character from an authentic perspective but they could also give it would give them an opportunity so that's the main point that we discussed today and I think it's really important and I'm really excited for you guys to hear the discussion we had and I'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to message me on Instagram we do have a new Instagram the beauty and being real pod as well as the beauty and being real so we now have two little Instagrams and of course you can always message me on my personal alicia.a.cave or you can email us the email and Instagrams and everything will all be in the description of each episode so if you do want to you can just have a little look but yeah, without further ado, let's get into this episode. I'm so excited and I hope you all enjoy. Hello, by the way. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? We never got the pleasure of meeting. No, I know. It was so hectic, like... I was hoping to like meet everyone at some point, but after work you just go straight into clean up and then go home. Have you been enjoying doing your this podcast then? Is how's how's it been received and stuff? It's been really, really fun. I loved having Good. a chance to speak to so many people because most of the people who I interview, I did I met them during lockdown. Mm. And obviously then everything came back to normal, so I haven't had a chance to probably speak to them since. So it's nice to have a catch up as well. Like one of them, me and my friend, literally spoke for two hours and then Paul George had to edit it down. Can you start off by saying a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So my name is Alim Jadavji. I am an actor and presenter. And when I'm not acting, I work as a sign language interpreter. I am a hard of hearing uh, Indian English um, queer actor is how I would probably self-identify. Yep. Okay. And did you like train as a performing artist at college or how did you sort of get into the industry? Oh, gosh, I went to the Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts in London. I trained in musical theatre. Um, bit of a funny sort of um, entrance into the industry, really. I grew up in a profoundly deaf family. So my whole family are deaf and they speak sign language. And so I wasn't ever really exposed to the arts um, because I was never taken to the theatre because it was just never accessible to them. Um, but my grandma used to really, really love the arts and she was hard of hearing and she used to always say to me, oh, you need to get that voice trained up. Um, <laughs> and 
school, I suppose, was my first introduction to it in secondary school when, you know, they did the yearly productions, the yearly yeah. musicals, you know, and year seven West Side Story. And I, I basically just did those every single year. And I remember the teacher saying, you know, you really should consider getting into this. Um, and I've always been a very hungry person. I've always created my own destiny, I think. Um, and I wrote off. So there was a book back in the day called Contacts, which doesn't exist anymore. And it was a book that was made by Spotlight, which is our casting oh, yeah. platform we use now. And it had every single contact you can think of from drama school to agent to casting director, you name it, it's all in there. It was like a one-stop shop guide. And I made my mum buy this for me. And I went through every single uh, page and wrote to every single drama school, basically introducing myself. I think it was about 14, 13, 14 at the time, just saying, hey, I'm Alim and I don't know how to get into this, but we're also on benefits and we can never afford the stupid fees. And one drama school got back to me and that was Italia Conti. And they invited me and my mum to come and meet them. And uh, I met this lovely woman called Alison, who I dedicate my whole career to really, who said, look, it takes a certain type of person to write a letter like that. I've never actually had a letter like this. And we'd love to offer you a scholarship to our Saturday school on the condition that you come every Saturday and you learn everything we tell you to learn. So next thing you know, I'm going up to London by myself every Saturday and studying tap, ballet, you know, singing, acting, doing all of that. And then I got to about 15, 16, and they offered me an audition for the main school to which I got in, but I didn't have a scholarship at the time. And I thought, I can't, I can't go. And then a letter came through saying, we'd like to see you for the scholarship auditions. And I got a full scholarship. So I moved to London and studied at the Conti's, which was amazing. Oh my god that's so amazing so did you do the sixth form there if you were 16 or did you just go straight into the degree or diploma? Well at the time they didn't actually have the degree course going the oh, degree okay. course has only been introduced in the last couple of years so it was just the diploma so I was I was one of the youngest people on the diploma course um, and it's funny isn't it I think with the arts it doesn't really matter whether you have a diploma or a degree. Yeah. Um, it is all about where you train very much so and of course if you're any good so um I graduated and I had I landed an agent from the showcase uh who and they were just lovely very supportive and they got me on well actually I had two job offers so the first was a cruise ship which was from um auditions just just within school so they'd arranged some casting directors to come in auditioners yeah. and then this agent landed me Annie the UK tour with Sue Pollard as one of the swings and I went away on tour with that for nine months and um, the rest is history. Oh this isn't even one of my questions on my list I'm just really intrigued are you able to speak about your swing work a little bit because I love listening to people when they talk about that I find it so interesting. 
genuinely i think swinging is one of the hardest most underappreciated jobs in the industry uh for those that don't know um being a swing basically entails um if you can think of it like if you visualize um uh, a, a, a tree graph of you know lead principles at the top who are then um with the understudy behind them sorry with the ensemble behind them yeah. usually the understudies of those principles live in the ensemble but then one when, when the ensemble goes on who understudies the ensemble well that is usually the swing um who very often has to learn in my case nine different tracks um, oh my and it, was, God. it was an absolute baptism of fire and I do believe it takes a certain person to be able to do it um a few years later I did another show with, and it was quite unique actually I did one called uh, Blockbuster the musical which was um a new musical that it didn't really go anywhere after at all um but had Paul Nicholas in it and well he wrote no he didn't write it but he directed it and was in it and um, I was the swing slash understudy of the lead role, which is very, very unusual, but I loved. Um, but swinging is not for everyone. Not everyone can do it. It takes a certain brain to be able to do it. You need to be a very visual person. You need, you need to be able to see tracks and journeys. And um, very often you might find yourself being on a split track where you'll be on for one ensemble member and then halfway through the show or halfway through a number you you jump onto someone else's track um but I loved it because I got adrenaline rushes every time I went <laughs> on and it was just amazing and but 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 for someone like myself who is very hungry like I say and knows where I want to go I was advised very early by an agent that if you continue doing swing contracts, you will never get anywhere else but swing because it's such a unique skill yeah. that people are desperate for um, that you have to be mindful. Some people love being swings and they're happy to do that. My my mate, one of my mates, um, he's he's built a career just being a swing and he's 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 brilliant. And he's bought a house and he's married and he's it's great. Um but you can get stuck. Um, so it's amazing. I, I love swinging. I think it's a it's a great way of really learning the trade. And I was very lucky that it was my first job. And actually, on Annie, I was a swing slash ASM. So I was assistant stage manager. Ah, got you. Which basically meant that when I wasn't on, I was basically in charge of props, which I hated. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, I have to arrive really early and set up the props table. But by the end, I learned to love it. And it really taught me um, an how to appreciate the backstage company and the backstage cast, backstage crew, I should say. And now what's very interesting, actually, and, uh, and it's going to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet here because I'm sure I get it wrong sometimes, but... I'm usually one of the only people in the company that makes friends with the backstage crew. Yeah. Um, I talk to them. I make time for them. I'm friends with them. Sometimes I'm 
I have better friendships <laughs> in the crew than I do the cars. Um, and I think that's partly because I was a crew member in it, I suppose. Um, it yeah. takes everyone to make a show. And I think a lot of actors that haven't experienced that sometimes forget that and can be a little bit snooty towards them, which is a shame. Yeah, I've had that before because my goal is always dancing and I'm going to dance college in September. But last year I did tech course at the Lighthouse. So we did lighting, depth stage manager, everything like that. And it was weird how like different performers would act towards you. And it felt like there was definitely a hierarchy, but some people were really, really sweet. And it was just really nice. to like. Well, that's really sad. It's sad because there shouldn't be a hierarchy, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, of course, there's a there's a natural hierarchy that develops, um, especially if you've been in the industry for a long time and you have the experience. I do actually think that a lot of younger people, especially in the ensemble on their first jobs, would should develop the skill of asking questions of their older, more experienced counterparts in the company, because that's how you learn and that's and most of those people are always willing to share stories and tips and tricks and to be honest that's how I learned um I working with Sue Pollard for nine months was one of the best things for me because I used to sometimes just go into her dressing room and just sit there she probably hated it bless her (laughs) (laughs) but I used to sit there and just chat and in that process you know learned so much and we developed a friendship um as I did with other older members of the company. Um, there was another lady who just passed away, Audrey Laban, who was, I think she must've been in her eighties. Um, and you, I think in society, you sort of look at older people and you sort of think, oh, you know, what do they know? But God, they, they're full of so much knowledge. And, you know, she was in a, a group called the Roly Polies, which I would have never have heard of until I spoke to her and heard all these stories. You know, she comes from a generation of variety, which is one of the reasons I love pantomime. I love variety work. And some of the best performers come from that world that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and so I learned from those sorts of people. Yeah, 100%. I love speaking to people in the industry. That's why I do the podcast. I absolutely love it. One person who really taught me everything I know is Chet Walker. I'm not sure if you know him. I know of him, of course. Yeah, I loved him so much. He taught me everything. So yeah, I really resonate with what you said. One thing one of my dance teachers taught me is like when it feels like there's a hierarchy in the company, think of it as a line. So like if I'm really anxious in class because I see the teacher as like, has like, not like a hierarchy, but someone above me. She said, see it as you're at the start of your line, so you're at the beginning of your process, and they're just further along the line. Like, it's not an upwards line. It's like a sideways line, which I really And that's a really, that's a really good, actually, you've taught me something. That's a really good way of looking at it. I think um, it's, I think respect is really, really important. I think it's important to, if you're at the beginning of that line, to respect those that are a lot further along the line. Um, But respect also has to happen both ways so um you know I sort of hope that the industry and it's with all its problems I hope that one of the things it can develop um and is developing is just more respect for one another no matter where you are on that line um which I do think is happening yeah 
you mentioned your work in the panto could you just tell everyone for those of you who don't know that's how we met because I work at the lighthouse and Alan performed in the pantomime so if you just want to speak about your character your role any like experiences that you had with it oh with this one specifically or my whole panto career go for it you can do whatever you're comfortable with speak oh, about anything you want to well in this one um this one was quite a unique uh special one I suppose because a, it was my first time playing an ugly sister in Cinderella. So I played um, Doris to my counterparts, Nadine, Nadine Doris, for anyone who uh, can think quick. And um, I was playing opposite someone that I would consider one of my closest and dearest friends, Andrew Pollard. And also in a company with Chris Jarvis, who I grew up with, who I, you know, as a 32-year-old man now, grew up watching um, every single day after school. So it was a really, really special one for me. Um, as I said, it was my first ugly sister, but my sixth pantomime. So um, I was actually discovered I say that lately um <laughs> by Andrew Pollard uh, himself in 2013 I think or 2014 I need to look at my maths um because Andrew at the time who is a very well established um pantomime performer who is a writer a director and actor outside of pantomime in his own right I think he's got something like 25 years of panto experience and he writes for about six eight ten different theatres up and down the country um he was a the writer director and resident dame at Greenwich Theatre yeah. and I got an audition there for Puss in Boots and I got cast in their title role as Puss which was a baptism of fire, let me tell you. And <laughs> it was amazing. And it, and I was young. I had so much energy. I don't, I, I, said, I said to Andrew, actually, in the dressing room the other day um, over Christmas, I said, I don't know how I did this. <laughs> Twice a day, six days a week as puss. The energy levels, I was literally pinging around the stage i remember one review wrote whatever alim is having i'd like it <laughs> <laughs> i remember thinking oh my god and i like now you know i'm 32 i'm still very young but i god I, I just don't have that same energy and um so i did three years on the trot at greenwich um and andrew was one of the people that i really learned from um he encouraged me to go see other pantomimes he I watched him working. He's just exquisite to watch. And we developed a really solid, lovely personal relationship. And I do believe in this industry, you it's very rare to meet performers that you just can look them in the eye and you know exactly what they're going to do and you're ready to play. You trust each other. And that was the relationship we built 
very very quickly um so the first year i was puss uh the second year i was the villain he actually called me and said you know this is this is different you know it's nightshade in uh jack and the beanstalk so the giant's henchman and i thought oh my goodness um i was very young and i thought really can i play villain but he was like hey let's incorporate your heritage your indian um i wanted to play him a bit like my brother a bit of a uh a rude boy uh with a sort of indian twist and who had you know we ended up doing this whole uh number with, with britney spears toxic um, <laughs> it was it was absolutely amazing and then the third year he just rang me up and said would you love would you love to play a tap dancing pig perchance who just wants to be a star in Red Riding Hood. And I was like, well, it sounds like me, darling. <laughs> I am a tap dancing pig that wants to be a star. And I found irony in that because um, I'm a Muslim <laughs> by default, <laughs> by birth. So we laughed about that. And then I took a bit of a hiatus and went off to do uh, Panto at Theatre Royal Stratford East um, in Sinbad the Sailor, where, which I, where I was... Um, a bit of a, a villain again but I say villain lightly because I always sort of play comic villains like villains that are just really bad at being evil I love yeah. playing those and then I went on to Hackney Empire um playing opposite Clive Rowe as his son uh and and uh Aladdin's brother uh Dishy 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 what a fitty is what I'd uh, was my call every time I came up on out on stage, which was great for the ego, um, <laughs> and I had a great time there, you know. And each one of those venues taught me something different, you know. To go from Greenwich, which is homegrown, grassroots, uh, five hundred seater, to Hackney Empire, two and a half thousand seater, or was it two thousand seater? Uh, you know, massive, beautiful Matcham theatre um playing opposite Clive Rowe like a god in pantomime and um and learn the ropes and the strings there by watching the different variety of performers um one of the reasons I loved Hackney so much is because I felt at home in terms of diversity um you know being white was the minority which um is such a rare case um it was it was it was lovely um to be in such a diverse company then i took a hiatus uh went off and did other things uh went to the rsc with a musical over christmas once um did uh and then covid hit and then as far as i was concerned i was taking a back step because i was really pushing and developing my tv career that's the sort of direction i've been going in recently and um andrew rang me and he said uh i uh, i'm not doing greenwich anymore sadly um going on to past is new and uh chris has asked me to be a ugly sister and i really want to do it with you and to be honest it's just one of the it was one of the biggest compliments i could have had because i thought oh my gosh you want to do it with me um you know because he's just incredible and then i was terrified all of a sudden because i just thought how am i going to play opposite this guy with tons of experience and not drown i don't know what i'm doing i've never played ugly sister before i don't want to play it stereotypically too i, I like my characters to have nuance and 
I like to think about, you know, I like them to be layered. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, I think when it comes to pantomime, they think it's a really easy gig. I remember talking to uh, a, a star casting who I won't name, who said to me, oh, um, right at the beginning of rehearsals said, uh, oh, yeah, I'm only doing this because uh, it pays well. And by the end of the run said to me, I have so much respect for panto performers because this is not easy. I have worked for my money and I have learned from, I've watched people just pick up a script and make it come to life in, uh, in the panto style that is so difficult to get right. Um, and I was terrified doing that with Andrew. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to absolutely drown. But, you know, it's a partnership. It's a duo. And whilst I was scared, it then comes to fruition <laughs> that he's scared, you know, because he's used to doing it alone. He's used to being the dame and to go out there with someone else and have to bounce with them is 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 a risk because if it doesn't work it really can be awful um one of the things that i think really worked for us was that he in heels towers at seven oh, yeah foot five and i am a diddy five five <laughs> and i think that's what really worked i think we weren't afraid of playing with the the shapes and sizes that we we come with and we allow or allowed space for the other performer to shine and i think that's the key with any sort of double act is that or actually to be honest with any uh, any any sort of artistry when you're working with other people if you give and allow space for the other person to shine, they will, unless they're an absolute narcissist, <laughs> they, they will give you the space to shine. They will only look good if they make you look good too. And it, it works both ways. And you've got to park your ego and allow your other member to shine as much as they let you shine. And I think that's one of the reasons Andrew and I worked so well together is that, you know, we weren't fighting for the limelight. We played in the limelight together. And I have to say it was one of the best hand on heart, most enjoyable pantomime experiences I've ever had. And I said this to Chris Jarvis, to um, Tim, the producer, to Elspeth, the chief exec, hand on heart an incredible venue to work who look after you so well in an incredible show with a great mate with a schedule that's just right in terms of balance you're not literally broken and exhausted because you know I've done pantos before where I'm two weeks away from the end of the run and I'm crying with exhaustion um and you have to find it somewhere within you. And of course, you know, we were all tired. There's time, there's moments of exhaustion, but it was joyful exhaustion. And it wasn't, we weren't too tired. And so genuinely, it was one of the best, best pantomime experiences I've had.
Yeah, 100%. I can't tell you the amount of people who like came up to me, especially little kids, like, I love the stepsisters, I want to be like them. <laughs> and I was, and my heart just melted every time they come up to me and say it. I was like, oh. But... It's really funny, isn't it? And, and that's one of the things Andrew and I really worked hard on. And actually, in my script somewhere, in capital letters, I wrote, you are not a villain. Because so often stepsisters, ugly sisters, whatever you want to call them, they they can fall into the the evil trope. Yeah. And 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 that's boring. You want the audience to love to hate you. And that's more fun. And I had to be reminded a few times and we had chats about this and I wrote that in capital letters, you know, it's very easy to go on and sneer and be that you know grumpy 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 sister but it can be so much more fun and nuanced and playful and you know you want the audience to love to hate you and you want the audience to really really get excited every time you come on stage you know one of the point one of the best parts of being an ugly I think or a dame is coming on with a different costume every time and oh yes if... the costumes were incredible <laughs> well exactly you've got to and 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 half the work is right at the beginning because you have to get the audience on side and you have to make them want more and you have to make them want to you know you want them to be excited what's what they're going to come out next what's their next costume what's going to come out their mouth next that those in my experience are the best best dames or uh, uglies 100 percent. so next question is what issues do you think are in the industry and how can we all work together to change these oh massive question the list is endless oh, no. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> i think to be honest um the, the biggest one we have at the moment is probably representation um i think there's a lot of great conversations happening but if I'm honest not much happening and I'm sure there'll be people listening going what no there is but there really isn't because I had a really lovely chat with a um uh a co-worker on a show where they said to me you're I'm usually the only person of color and it's so lovely to have a second person of colour in the space. And I think in regards to representation, and I, th- I, I remember thinking, how how are we still in a situation where one person in the company is a person of colour, two people are people of colour? Why, why do we not have minimum at least 40, 50% of colour? Um I think representation is a huge problem. I think how things are represented is also a problem. We see it a lot in pantomime. There's a lot of conversations happening at the moment with Aladdin and other pantos that have been very problematic over the years. Um, and, and you know, just across the industry where we're going, we can do better than just one person of colour. We can do better than... Um, having a white person writing uh, a black story or a brown story you know it's like hey let 
we are a beautiful, rich, diverse industry now, fortunately. I can understand back in the day it was, a, you know, a lot harder to have diversity. I appreciate that. But now there is no excuse. It's so rich. It's so eclectic. It's so diverse. And we need to bring in all these people to create stories, to write alongside one another, to develop together. One of the reasons I love Andrew Pollard so much, and I'm, I'm aware that this podcast has now become a whole hour of Andrew Pollard loving. but um, We love that though. We do. We, we love Andrew Pollard. Um, but I remember saying to him in the um, dressing room, one of the reasons he's one of my favourite people in the world is because he acknowledges that as a white man, he has work to do. Um, and therefore, he asks all the questions. And we've developed a relationship where no question is silly or offensive. Um, we can be candid with each other. We've had very difficult conversations um, where I've struggled to understand, he's struggled to understand, and other people in the industry, you know, are learning. Um, but you can only learn if you ask the right questions. And 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 just because I'm a person of colour, I can't claim to know all the answers. I can't speak on behalf of a East Asian person or a black person. I can't do that. I can only speak from my experience, which is going to be significantly different to a black person's lived experience, to an East Asian's lived experience. Um, I'm also a mixed race. That lived experience is very different. I'm also very fair in skin colour. So my lived experience walking down the street is going to be very different to someone who is in a who has a darker tone to their skin. And I think we're just at the point now where we have to represent more effectively and we have to tell these stories more effectively. But the same mistakes are being made. How do you think we can change that? I know there's probably not one set answer, but is there something that you think people can do to either start this conversation, change the issue, or just develop it in some way? I think actors need to start taking a lot more accountability. Very often the blame is left at the writer's door, the director's door, the production company's door, the producer's door, which very much should be at their door if they are making those same mistakes. Because let's be honest, when you're developing those teams, if it is completely white, you have a problem. Um, and I'm also aware on just on that note that we need to move away from talking about diversity as race also. Um diversity needs to start encompassing disability we don't talk about disability i am a disabled person myself and we are extremely underrepresented we represent 20 percent of the uk population yet i think there's only about three or four percent representation on our screens um it's it's appalling um so you know we 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 do have and, you know, so race, disability, um, uh, sexuality, um, gender, but also, you know, I, I even, you know, class is such an important conversation as well. You know, 
we need to move away from these Etonites. You know, God love them. Some of the some of the best talent has come from Eton, but we need to move away from that. Some people just aren't as privileged. I would not have been able to go to drama school if they did not give me that scholarship. Fact, I probably wouldn't be in the industry. Um, so how do we solve it? I think actors need to take more accountability. I think actors need to learn to say no. And it's one of the hardest things in the world. I get it. You wait for months for that audition. You get the job and then you want to turn it down because it's because you shouldn't be doing it. I get it. It's hard. It's hard. I get it. But for things to change, for the world to be a better place, morally, you have to ask yourself, what am I doing this for? Am I doing this for the for my ego, for my career, because I want to look great? Or am I doing this for the greater good? Because it's hard. I get it. I get it's hard in the beginning. But you need to, as someone who is privileged, you need to make space for those that are, aren't as privileged. I do it myself. I had a job come through the other day that was looking for an actor that was profoundly deaf. They were interested in me. And I said to my agent, I am hard of hearing. I have a degree of hearing. I am not going to play profoundly deaf. Get an actor who is profoundly deaf because they are not going to have that experience if I take that away from them. Um, you know, you see this argument constantly with, oh, it's a gay character. Why does it have to be um, a gay person? And it's like, listen, I would love to be in the position where we can all play all the roles under the sun. And I do genuinely believe that one day we will get there, but we are not there yet. And so sadly, if you see, if you see the world as a pendulum as I do, I think sometimes you have to hit it so far the other way to make it come back to a happy medium. And very often for, for straight people, they, they have an, a collection of roles they can go for. Um, but it's also about lived experience, um, authenticity. I genuinely think, and I, you know, and then very often people will come back with, but, but it's acting. And I do understand, yes, it's acting. But there is nuance missed. I had, and I can tell you, as someone who has grown up in the deaf community and is hard of hearing myself, and seen people play deaf and attempt to know a bit of sign language, it's just not authentic. You can tell from a mile away. They honestly, some of the best actors have tried to do it, and they look awful. They look awful, and the non-disabled audience clap their hands and give them awards and the rest of us are crying thinking this is not authentic when there are genuine people out there that would be brilliant um i think 
actors need to start taking accountability and start saying no and not just saying no but then saying i really think this needs to be played by a b and c and listen if that producer then goes on and casts a non-disabled person or a white person or whatever at least you can say you stood by your morals and if they ever get challenged because we are at a point now where people are calling everyone out you can turn around boldly and proudly and say i did say um we all have to take accountability we all have to learn to say no we all have to learn to say i want better i demand better and that's not being woke it's not being um you know, a lefty, it's just wanting to see a better, better workplace, a more reflective workplace where people, every, where, the, where the playing field is equal and everyone is getting the same shot at a role. You know, you always hear people saying, well, surely it should be the best person for the job. Yeah, of course. But very often, let's use a disabled actor as an example, very often they will have one audition a year in comparison to a non-disabled 20 auditions a year. And I say that lightly because I know that not all non-disabled actors are getting 20 auditions a year. I mean, that you're very lucky if you do. Very often you're lucky if you get a handful. But I'm just drawing that as a, as a, as a comparison um, in the same way, you know, a lot of gay actors aren't even getting seen for straight roles i remember i played the dad in tommy the musical um and one of the people said to me as i left a stage door oh my god i had no idea you were gay and i was like oh compliment or insult yeah <laughs> Okay, okay. It was like you're so camp. You're so, you know. And I know what he was saying. Like, you know, naturally as a person, I'm I'm quite flamboyant at times. Like, I can be quite camp. My voice can be effeminate. I'm like, but this is the issue. Gay people are very rarely given the option or the opportunity to show what they can do. You're not even allowing me in the room let alone giving me the job. You know, I only got that job because I knew the director who knew what I could do and knew that I could play this straight man who had a wife and had, you know, whatever. Um, we're not even given the opportunities where straight or non-effeminate or non-camp or straight presenting people are are getting in the room so yeah i i suppose in conclusion i think um yeah the industry as a whole needs to up their game but actors need to take more accountability i'm really tired of seeing actors accepting things that they should not be doing there's one person i can think of right now on a program that um is playing a variety of different minorities and is a cis white straight man <laughs> and it's just boring because sometimes i think to myself you're not even giving the space for someone less experienced to 
even climb the ladder or develop the skills or get to the position that you're in you know it's all very well that you want to say it's all very well that people say they want people in higher senior positions with representation but if you're not going to develop them from the ground up and give them the opportunities you're never going to have that representation at the top you're never going to have true representation at award ceremonies at um these big notable shows and programs if you're not going to develop them it, it's, it starts even all the way back at drama school you know we need to do they need to do more outreach they need to get out into those communities and encourage people to come up come on in you know it's not really a question it's more of a point I noticed in the pantomime I saw the representation of for example Alex's character Dan Dini that's yeah yeah and I saw what Alex wrote about that so it was really nice to see how he felt represented in that role and that's one reason why I really loved the pantomime this year as well it's so important you know to see representation and like I said it's not just about um color it's about sexuality the fact that dandini was uh, uh, it was never really clear but possibly gay uh character was so important because there are kids out there that are desperate to see themselves represented um there was a girl that made a point of coming to stage door to with her mum because she felt seen and represented seeing a black fairy um there will be kids in that audience that are confused struggling questioning their sexuality that will see characters like dandini and 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 go wow you know i think i think what where we do need to be um in the industry is move away from laughing at people's uh, minorities uh, using it as a joke and and celebrating it um but we're 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 in a better place than we used to be and uh i know duncan from blue did a pantomime where uh he kissed a guy in the pantomime and it was so well received but i don't know would whether it'd be a different story if it wasn't Duncan from Blue, if it was Alim from London <laughs> kissing another guy in in another unknown actor in a pantomime, are there going to be letters of complaint? Um, and then there's also the part of me that thinks, well, no, because I think in 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 the arts we are the change makers. We have so much power. We can influence change and you know present a world that could be and the problem is is that i think so many people are also scared of complaints oh god we've had a complaint cut that joke oh god we've had a complaint let's not do that it's like you will get complaints whether you like it or not and sometimes we have to be the change makers and so yes do it and of course you have to be sensitive of course you have to be mindful and respectful but if you are not the change change will not come and i think we have a lot of power in the arts to be the change it's important to remember that so it was really refreshing um to be in a pantomime that had two people of color 
eyes disabled. I can't speak on behalf of anyone else. I can't remember if there's any other disabilities, but I was disabled, even though it wasn't spoke about, just to have that representation even in the company and some as someone who wears hearing aids and people asking me questions and learning from the process is so important. Um and having a queer character. Amazing. It was. It was amazing. Like I just love learning about everything about the industry and where are you at at the moment? What's the idea what's the ideal for you? So a few of the people who were in the ensemble for the pantomime they went there at leaf or they went to leaf i just finished studying at leaf last july so i'm doing a gap year because i hadn't really worked before couldn't drive so now really close to driving i'm working like six different jobs and then i've been offered a place to i just want to do dance because for years i did musical theater because i wasn't i was a bit poorly so i wasn't able to dance and i started dancing during lockdown and now i'm training to do professional dance so I've got offered LMA in London to study a degree in dance and then I've got a few more LMA London Musical Theatre Academy yes yeah yeah check me out (laughs) (laughs) and then I've got a few other auditions coming up that's really exciting and I I think generally as an industry we have to learn to become multidisciplinary there's no such thing as just an actor, just a dancer, just a writer. It just doesn't exist anymore. You really have to be a master of all. No, what is it? A master, jack of all, master of none. Very much um, a jack of all. Um, I am an actor who can present, who can sing, who can dance, who can do pantomime, which is a skin in itself who can do variety, who is now sort of venturing into the world of writing. I do, I'm not going to label myself a writer yet. But my point is, is that I think you have to develop these strings to your bow um, just to make yourself marketable, really. So whilst I completely think you're going down the right path, I think you should develop your presenting, um, you know, you ask questions and you've set this up and you've got your podcast. I think keep going. It's so exciting. Yeah, hundred percent. I, yeah, I, I am a dancer, but I, do, I have done singing and acting exams. I'm doing an acting show at the Lighthouse in July. Lovely. Like, there are still those little bits, but I really like companies. Do you know McConey Company or Fresh Sector Company? With Drew, Drew McConey. Yeah, I yes, love. Yes, of Drew. course. It's incredible. Yeah, I really want to, as soon as his auditions for his company come up, I will literally get a train to London. I don't care. I will come along. I remember when I was like 15 during lockdown and I first started dancing, I took one of his classes and I was like, how do you join the company? And he responded and he told me like, oh, come to this audition when like lockdown's over. But I was so starstruck that he messaged me that I just screenshot interesting ignored what he said. Oh, (laughs) no, Alicia. Alicia. But you you must go to the audition because who no, knows and even if nothing comes of it it's experience right i mean i remember one audition that i went to where one of my first audition dance auditions and it was so so fast and i thought oh my god like i'm not gonna get this job i can't keep up but and i didn't get the job and i got cut but it made me up my game um i do think as an industry we have to be mindful of and uh, we need to be 
um, we need to start having reasonable adjustments, you know, uh, you know, having processes like that, where it's like a five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, go. (laughs) It's not conducive to people who are neurodivergent, for example, or et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, and, and you're, you're cutting off talent. You're missing out on a lot of talent. So I do think that's unhealthy, but it does push you, you know, and that, that I, I never forget it because it was an awful, awful day. I, I was on Annie. I got the train down from wherever we were. I lost a contact lens on the train, did the audition with one contact lens in. It was killing me. So I took it out. I was absolutely blind. I could not see. I was like, oh my God. I was so nervous. I put myself to the back of the room rather at the front. Like, why would I do that? And then the audition, for, oh, it was just awful. It was, it was awful. It was awful for like an amazing choreographer, but it made me up my game. And so I do think it's important to go because if you don't go, even if it is awful, you will learn. 100%. I'm definitely going to just give it my all and see what happens. Yay. <laughs> I, oh, I remember another thing. I can't remember exactly who it was. I've got an idea of who it was who said it, but I'm not going to say in case I get it wrong. But they said that where they're dyslexic, they really struggle to read scripts. So now they do their own casting and stuff like that. So they actually record the script for people so then they could listen to it rather than read it if they struggle with that as well, which I thought... Well, exactly. I just think, you know, technology is so amazing now. There's no reason why reasonable adjustments should can be in place for everyone um i think i think personally the question do you have any reasonable adjustments should be a question that's normalized and asked of everybody no matter whether you're a non-disabled actor or not um because you'll be very surprised how many conversations and doors it opens I once did a job where they said, well, um, do you have any responsibilities that you need to flag? And I was like, oh, my God. Well, yes, of course. My mum and dad are deaf. And very often they might require me to just jump on a call with them to interpret something. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Just flag it. And it was like, wow, you know, you've that conversation's already been had rather than being put in the position in a room where I'm ignoring a call and then I'm having to say to the director I'm really sorry can I just step out my mum's just called everyone already knows what the situation is people that have childcare responsibilities single parents you know these are all reasonable adjustments reasonable adjustments are not just for disabled people you know um people loads of people benefit from having scripts recorded for them to listen to so many people do um Clive Rowe actually was the one that told me about an app called Line Learner which I oh, didn't yeah. know about um you record your own lines uh well you record all the lines and then you can choose which character you want uh to speak back at you and it gives you a break in between each one for you to respond yeah it's a great I love that. um so yeah I think I think change is coming it's not happening quick enough um there are some people that are more reluctant than others but it's all positive in the end really and more talent is going to be 
available to you if you open your eyes that's amazing thank you so much thank you so much um it's been lovely it's been an absolute pleasure the end of this episode I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and yeah a huge thank you to Alan for doing this interview with me I loved every minute I'm really proud of it and I feel like we discussed such important topics because I feel like turning down roles as an actor it can always be daunting and it is really scary to actually stand up and demand what's right but if we don't do that how will the industry ever change for the better and I think that's one of the main things that everyone in the industry needs to do is hold yourself accountable I think the self-awareness is really important and I think personally if I get offered a role that is not right for me even if I've had no work I would turn it down because it would give someone else the opportunity to play an authentic role and think that's really important and I feel like the universe will reward you and you'll get good karma and something will come that is right for you I feel like as a performer you're so desperate to get jobs that you can neglect the fact that there's someone who could play it authentically and they've had no opportunities due to their sexuality for example their race their disability anything like that and you'll be giving them an opportunity and I truly do believe that the universe will reward you with a job that is right for you if you do so so yeah that is the end of this episode I hope you enjoyed and I again a big thank you to Alan loved this episode I know I've said it about 20 times but I really really enjoyed it and it was so nice to speak to him and I will see you next Sunday at 12 o'clock midnight for another episode in the beauty and being real next week will be a solo episode so i'm excited to share with you guys my thoughts and opinions